Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Mountain Ground Podcast. And um, tonight it's myself, Nicolette, and Peter discussing expectations when out in the mountains. You know, what expectations do you put on yourself and just realistic expectations when heading out into the mountains. And to tie in with that, Peter is going to tell us a bit about um, his last race that he did in Ireland, a proper mountain race. And then he'll also finish off by telling us more about uh, the Shot in the Dark competition, which Gegrond, of course, won last year and is coming up shortly. So he's going to give us a bit of a good intro into into what that competition is all about. But to start this episode off, we are going to answer a few questions of what we left open last week, where we brought up the topic of how much caffeine is actually in a shot of coffee. So Peter has done his homework, and I'm going to hand over to him, and he's going to brief us on that. Peter, you're up. Yeah, yeah thanks, Peter. Uh, Nicolette, always like it to have a chat with you guys. Um, it's like, as we Peter said last week, we chatted about caffeine, and one of the questions, Nicolette, that you had was in terms of how much caffeine is in a, a cup of coffee. And initially, I thought... I'd go back and try and determine what the caffeine content per gram of coffee is. But, you know, it's a bit of a, it's an interesting um, topic. I never, I couldn't find one answer to this question. Basically, what it boils down to is, um, firstly, what what veritable coffee it is that you're actually um, using or species of coffee. So if it's Robusta or Arabica. So if it's Robusta, usually the uh, caffeine content is about uh, double that of... Um, uh, sorry, of Robusta is usually double the content of Arabica. Um, so that that is a given. But when it actually comes to... Uh, within like Arabica coffees, what the caffeine content per gram of coffee, they, it just varies so substantially. So there's not really a measurement where you can say one gram of coffee is equal to that amount of milligrams of, of caffeine. Uh, generally, like it can range from say 30 milligrams of caffeine per cup of coffee to 300 milligrams of, uh, of caffeine per cup of coffee. It depends all on the method of brewing that you're using um you know if you do something like a cold brew coffee it can be really high or if it's just like a quick you know uh, there's, there's so many variables um i know a lot of the reading that i did showed that generally a cup of coffee might have you know like 95 to 100 milligrams of coffee but um oh, caffeine uh, in a cup of coffee but like i said it quite varies in terms of your preparation method so so yeah, i think that's basically what i came back with for this this week i'm not sure if i'm going to get a gold star on that one but that's that's the literature out there <laughs> that's the literature out there so uh you know i'm not going to argue with them yeah that that's really interesting actually that um i had no idea that a different blend of or a different bean um and different origin will have a different amount of caffeine so that's quite interesting um and and yeah so yeah yeah it's more to it's like i mean the origin might not have that it's usually like you have robusta and you have arabica coffee so that's the two type of species of of coffee if you can call it that um usually the robusta is very bitter it's usually 
a very full body type of coffee and it's quite it has the characteristics of being a very bitter coffee and usually like in Italian blends that usually use a lot of robusta type of coffee which is where you get that high caffeine content um so so yeah <laughs> that's that's it and like uh, uh, that's basically what I and with regards to um coffee do you guys offer um, versions or blends of either the Robusta or the Arabica in your range of coffees? Yeah, so we actually only stock Arabica coffee, um, which is usually a more flavorful type of, of coffee, um, which, yeah, so that's usually where, where we'd use, well, to answer your question, in Gegrond we only have Arabica coffee. Okay, but, um, cool. you know, maybe in future, in the future we'll, We'll look at doing a blend and adding a little bit of robusta to get some nice body, um, you know, like a full flavor uh, body type of coffee. So, but yeah, that's all work in progress. <laughs> so, um, so before I keep dragging my, this subject of the caffeine, I mean, like the second topic that we said we're going to have a bit of a chat about is the pace you know when you actually eating going to a mountain uh and you know what your expectations might be um i've i've personally been asked a lot uh, a lot of times like what would your pace be for a mountain run and you know like it's always an open-ended answer because you just never know uh, i see pierre has done a trail run that looks like he's more ran a a pat marathon uh, this weekend so <laughs> so uh so you know that's obviously on the one end of the spectrum but you know like i'm sure if pierre was to run another race uh with a different terrain and more elevation gain you know it's not going to be able to to uh, sustain that 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 pace uh you know like it's it it's just such a such an interesting like uh, dynamic when it comes to different terrain uh, how have you guys experienced it uh, and how do you actually like manage your your um I wouldn't say clients <laughs> your athletes expectation when it comes to their own first marathon uh, trail run yeah um yeah it's actually quite a funny one with regards to this weekend's race because it's it's not typical to the kind of training or running that we do in our day-to-day -day, you know life i guess we usually move big mountains no trail, you know, self-navigation, route finding, all the other like, it's more, you're actually more reliant on your soft skills um, and your, your your skills than just your pure athleticism, I guess, where that's why this weekend's Platinum Trail Run was so much fun because, you know, it's just kind of like flat out go and, you know, who's got the biggest engine kind of thing because the technicality didn't really come in and you could well, try to maintain a pace that you never thought you could. And uh, I think only like really like, like the guys that won, they were doing like ridiculous paces. I think the guy that won, he ran like an average of 345 or something. Just to give the, <laughs> the listeners a little bit of insight um, into the Platinum Trail Run, it's uh, we did the long version, which is a, a whole 24 kilometers out in the Michalisburg at the Buffelsburg Dam. And although it's a trail run, 
Uh, there were very few sections of single track, and if they were, they were well ridden because there's also the 65k mountain bike race the day before. And then most of the race is just jeep track, so it had 500 meters of elevation gain over the 24 kilometers, but really, really runnable. So made for a very fast race and with a little bit of prize money on offer, also attracted some pretty fast uh, road runners. Yeah, and that is kind of like where I want to go into the race that you did the other day, uh, Seven Sisters in Ireland, which is proper mountain run again. You know, so it's almost like, a, that's why I like your analogy there with the Robusta and the <clears throat> Arabica coffee. You know, not one coffee is the same. You know, it's not going to have gram for gram um, caffeine content. Same as that's the beauty about trail running or mountain running or sky running or whatever form of trail running you're doing is it's not like a road run where every kilometer is equal to the next kilometer so you can't set off at a certain pace and expect to maintain that for the whole race so without going to go i'm not i don't want to go further down this because i really want to hear about your race that you did so on that kind of like note can you just also explain to us your run at seven sisters and like what was the um you know, some sections obviously you could probably run quite fast because I have actually the first time I met you was at Volvespreit and I think you finished the 9k loop, loop like five minutes faster than I did and you were bloody fast. So, but also you, I'm pretty <laughs> sure during Seven Sisters you had really slow kilometers as well. So I would love to get some more insight into your race there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you say, I think, I think one big learning curve for me, um, spending a bit of time in the mountains here in Ireland is your underfoot. You know, the surface under your foot, which is tends to be quite soft and mucky and muddy. So you never really get the type of traction that you'd find in, in the more, you know, hard, dusty roads of, of South Africa. So, you know, that was obviously one of the first I don't say barrier isn't the right word. It's just differences between running in, in Ireland and, and definitely running in South Africa. And this specific race, the Seven Sisters Skyrun, is um, it's probably one of the, the more well-known trail runs in Ireland. And um, it consists of about 52 kilometers. And then there was about 3,700 meters of elevation gain. So, you know, <laughs> one would think that... Uh, I mean, like, let's face it, if it's if you're a really, really fast runner and you break, say, a three-hour three marathon, then, you know, uh, that's, you, you're absolutely flying. Um, and even, like, if you're not, you know, even finishing a marathon in five hours is still, is still very respectable. And, um, you know, like, in, in, for example, I took, for this race, I took eight hours and, like, eight minutes. <laughs> so it took almost... You know, you can just imagine like it's like it took a substantial amount of time longer to complete the same race. And I was I was obviously giving it stick from the start uh, to the finish. And, um, you know, like you end up you end up like hiking a lot of the route. I mean, my average pace for that run was, uh, I think, nine, nine minutes and 19 uh, yeah, per kilometer, which is, you know, I know I can run a lot faster on road and, uh, you know, but I was still putting in a lot of effort. I was exhausted by the time I, I reached the end. It wasn't a, a leisure day in the mountains. It was, it was really hard going. So, um, so yeah. And again, like I said, that terrain was very mucky. 
uh, ups and downs and uh, there was even some rocky sections uh, which to some extent I was a bit relieved because <laughs> <laughs> that gave you a little bit of a foot foot off but um, yeah so it, uh, but it was good fun like you know um, yeah it was all in all I think it was great fun it was that authentic felt running experience just felt a bit like a little kid in mud <laughs> I looked like a kid in mud by the time I finished there's mud all over me and over my not only over my legs I think I was one of the few competitors that actually had mud on my face as well <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah yeah not so much fault running but uh, fall running I guess that's uh yeah. what you have to learn over there <laughs> it's all about the bog and the the moisture in the ground but um, yeah, look, it sounds like a lot of fun, Peter. And uh, just for interest sake, because I think you did quite well, what was your position overall? Uh, so for that chance, I came seventh uh, overall. I think there was, uh, I can't remember if there was like 150 or 200 participants uh, in the 55. And I think there was about 700 in the, for the shorter distance and the longer distance events. So yeah, uh, so, well yeah I'm happy with the effort. <laughs> <laughs> doing south africa proud oh, eh? Okay. top 10 next year next year top five <laughs> well, or podium eh? yeah well the sad part is that they didn't even put my south african flag next to my name they put an irish flag <laughs> <laughs> so what's the did you lodge like, a complaint well, <laughs> yeah i wanted to finish i wanted to actually go to the organizer say look you know like i really enjoy ireland and i love the people but you know, my passport still says South Africa. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, no, but yeah. that's fantastic and well done. Yeah, good job mm. with that one. And oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, very relevant to what I want to touch on today is, and you, you asked earlier, how do we manage the expectations of pace with our athletes, a lot of whom are training for specific mountain races or tough trail runs and here the elevation plays a very big role and also the terrain that you're running on so in the Drakensberg specifically and this year it has been an extremely wet uh, summer and rainy season so the escarpment itself has imagine it's pretty much like Ireland or the UK when it's wet it's just been a bog it's basically fall running up there now if you're moving in those sorts of conditions you're shoes are wet they're heavy at in at night time your feet are cold and these sorts of things really really slow you down so it's difficult to explain to athletes that come to us with the expectation of improving their mountain running pace that it's it's really tough to move quickly in the mountains and this is something we saw you know from the the early years when we started to do bird missions we would plan a 30 40 kilometer trip per day um, for maybe two or three days in a row and we kind of come down tail between our legs having done 15 kilometers only and like exhausted from it and that's just because of the terrain it's the the elevation that you have to do per day the lack of trail the fault the navigation all these things really play a big role in how fast you can move so in terms of athletes looking at doing mountain events, I think it's important to extrapolate maybe from a extrapolate upwards, if that makes sense. So imagine you're going into the mountains and 
you have a hiking background. And by the way, that's a, a very good place to come from if you're going to do some trail or mountain running is to have a strong hiking background and then say, okay, I'm going to move a little bit faster than what I would on an average hike. I'm not going to have such a heavy pack. It's more of a run. Um, you know, there's other people, it's a race, there's support, there's marshals, that sort of thing. And these factors will enable you to move quicker than you would on a hike. But it's not a good idea to say, I move on average, you know, six minutes per kilometer when I run my local trail at home, which might be, you know, the Delta Park or the Sprite, relatively flat, nicely groomed trail, and then expect to move at 6.30 or 7 minutes per K only in the Berg, because unfortunately that's not the reality. So moving up there is super slow, and you can, you know, take this information for any mountain ultra, but you want to go into it rather with a a lower expectation and then exceed that then you know hope to run your your average trail pace and then you know be really disappointed at the end of the day yeah and that's mm. and other yeah no, sorry peter go ahead there. super yeah i just want to know like i mean that doesn't that make training quite challenging as well because you know um it's probably one of those things where you're going to train at a certain pace, but when it comes to actually the event, you're going to be running at a much slower pace. Does that have a big influence or is like how does, I think the question that I really want to get to is how does that, how do you manage that difference between the pace that you train at and the pace that you'll actually be running at in a trail run? So I suppose the big thing we do with our coaching is we don't schedule our athletes to run according to distance and pace, but we have them running on a time schedule, which means they are aiming for a specific time, total time per week of running. And they're not under pressure to complete that amount of time at any specific pace. The only time we bring in distance or speed is if they're doing intervals and that we work out from, you know, what we can see on their average pace. But day to day with their easy, comfortable running, you know, getting the volume up, it's all based on time. And that allows each athlete to run at their own, we call it the forever pace, but it's basically a comfortable pace that they can do for a long period because most of our athletes are ultra orientated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's that's quite interesting because I I might have mentioned it in one of the previous podcasts, but you know this is again this is just a personal reflection. Um, you know, I find that as soon as you spend a lot of time or getting elevation gain and you know really being out there on the type of terrain that you'd probably be running in, and your long runs especially are at a very slower pace. You become quite strong, but you do tend to lose a bit of the speed. Um, so I always, I always struggled with managing the two. You know, we want to get strong for the mountains to do to do the elevation gain, and then obviously retain a lot of speed for when it's needed. But you know, uh, I, I've always struggled with that balance um, between the two. A lot of, um, I guess that a lot of athletes have that. They always think, um, if I'm going to do mountain runs and 
things, then I'm going to lose all my speed. But like, I don't do much speed work, but you can force the speed out, I feel, you know, but you can't, if you just do speed, you're not going to make a 20 hour run or 30 hour run easy. You know, you have to go actually work at that other, that lower end pace and get strong in the mountains and really train the uphills and the downhills. And, you know, you can't expect someone. So we do also actually prescribe elevation weeks. We would say the objective of this week is merely to get 6,000 meters of say elevation. And, um, you can't then, ex <laughs> you know, but you can't then expect someone to do a 120 or a massive kilometer week because the kilometers are then irrelevant, you know, so we need to focus on what is relevant. Um, and that's a very difficult way. And like the way I try to start with a lot of these things is before we go into the technicalities of pace versus distance versus duration and all that stuff, I actually try to focus on how are we wording all of it? How are we phrasing it? So we get a lot of athletes that say, okay, I want to run an ultra. And then I go, okay, cool. You want to run an ultra. How much of that ultra are we actually going to be running? You know, to be honest, say sky run. There's a joke, you know, people call sky run. It's not sky run, it's sky hike. Because so many people, you know, you hike a lot of sky run. Um, so it's a very slow 100K because it's self-navigation. It's difficult terrain. And it's got quite a bit of climbing in it. So how about rephrasing it and going, I want to experience Skyrun, you know, or I want to traverse, you know, I try to like the word association for me is very powerful because what I found is a lot of people go, I went for this run and I ended up walking 50% of it. So I feel like a failure. And I'm like, no, 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 that's part of ultra running. You know, that's part of trail and mountain running is to walk but let's call it hiking or power hiking. And by changing your mindset and positive connotations to certain words and not having negative connotations to certain words actually then improves performance. Because on a long ultra run, it's not about your top end speed. You know, like if say, Peter, you can do four minutes a K and I can only do four minutes, 15 a K. Well, I'm only losing 15 seconds on you. But if you blow up at kilometer 80 and sit under a tree and have a bit of a nap and you have a 35-minute kilometer, because that is realistic, I have done it before at Skyrun, you lose a lot of time if I can just do that same kilometer in, say, 15 minutes because I was just walking all the time or hiking all the time. Um, so it's very important to also then decide what are you training for, specifically conditioning your body for it, going into the mountains, doing training at that pace. Because training for an ultra is quite different because it's really weird. If you're training for a marathon, you're always going to be training at quite a fastest pace or for a 20K, you know, like where you train at a high-ish pace or your easy runs are really easy and your race pace is really fast, you know. So you might be training at five minutes a kilometer, but your race pace is 4.30. Um, then you get to say training for a race like Skyrun, where your training runs are being done at six minutes a K, but your racing average is going to be like seven minutes a K. So it's quite weird that your racing pace is slower than your actual training pace. And that is just some of the small differences when it comes to, it's almost 
the art of ultra running coming in and it's not just science yes there's a lot of science but it's also the art of ultra running so that's where i always like try to focus heavily on don't allow anyone anyone else to place expectations on you and don't place unrealistic expectations on yourself so don't go think you're going to go run 100% of say sky run or whatever race um acknowledge the fact that you might have to walk and if you're gonna ever have to walk well why not also then train how to walk really fast and uh let's call it power hiking it feels much better to power hike than to walk <laughs> yeah i think uh does that would that then mean say for example you do a few hikes would that translate to or transfer into basically a good time a uh, trail run or are the two a bit too far remote from one another? I guess it depends. Like, so I've done quite a bit of guiding lately, especially um, in the Drakensberg. And it's usually, it's been with a big 75 liter pack and um, the weather has been quite rough. Yeah, we've had four snowstorms already in the Berg and it's, you know, only the 7th of June. So um I've been packing a lot of extra gear and handing out gloves and handing out extra layers to some of the clients. And, you know, having that heavy pack on my back, I could really feel for the first time I'm quite strong on the ups and I'm not as conditioned, say, from the running point of view, but on the climbs and the descents, I've become quite conditioned just because heavy pack going up and down a lot, hiking at a decent pace. So there's probably validity in that where hiking with a heavy pack, it's like weight training, I guess. Um, so there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely validity in the fact that hiking will make you strong. And you also look at some of the, there's a couple of American ultra runners where they actually come from a through hiking background where they'll, they actually just spent five or 10 years originally, like just hiking the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and just through hiking it completely. And then they became runners. And then they became really good ultra runners because the pace of hiking wasn't that much different from the ultra running, you know, 100 mile or 200 mile kind of pace. Um, so where, I guess, if you're a collegiate athlete and you're used to, you know, smashing really hard and fast short runs, it's going to be difficult to accept, first of all, the fact that you are going to have to walk a lot and you aren't always going to be at that really nice, feeling good leg turnover pace. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting because, um, yeah, I, I can, I guess, I, you know, looking back, I can partly relate with it. And it does ask the question when it comes to, to training for ultra, getting that self-awareness where you have a good understanding of what your you know, your per perceived effort is, you know, because um, I guess we, what comes with the terrain is also a bit of a, a variance in terms of what you perceive as being a good or bad effort. And um, it's like you said at the beginning of this podcast or at the beginning of this discussion is, you know, if you're going to target certain parameters or, or splits or, you know, pace, then I guess you're going to lose track of what your perceived effort is, which might be a lot more, although you're running slower, you know, and, um, you know, you might end up burning a lot of those candles quite early on in a race. And, uh, you know, you, you might get those, uh, those nice pictures at the front, 
for the first like kilometer. <laughs> Your TV time. <laughs> Which is, I I watched the guy the other day, and then it's like these breakaways where you get this guy. You know, it's not gonna finish, but he has all this, all this um, publicity for probably like eighty percent of the race because he's at the front. But uh, you know, he doesn't put it through to the end. So. Um, so yeah, I guess um, it's always important to just keep a pulse on what your perceived effort is uh, when it comes to these ultra ultra running distances, and um, especially if the terrain is quite varying. Yeah, the one hundred percent, Peter, and that's you're just leading us into like giving away all our coaching <laughs> um, kind of specs <laughs> because we also we work on RPE rate of perceived effort as our primary gauge of how an athlete feels on their day to day run. So heart rate is also a nice um, parameter to use. But it can be affected by other things, for example, like caffeine or lack of sleep. That sort of thing can elevate your heart rate. So the most all-encompassing parameter you can use on a run to gauge how you feel is your RPE. It takes into account everything, literally. So, and that's because we train mostly trail runners. That's also why we use RPE. It gives us a really good gauge of how an athlete is feeling, taking into consideration you know, all accounts of their their lifestyle and their their week and their day. And if you're going to go into an ultra worried about or focusing on your pace or your heart rate or, you know, how much distance have you covered, then you really are setting yourself up for failure, unfortunately. But you need to go into it with an open mind, monitoring how am I feeling? Am I eating? Am I drinking? Am I moving? And if you can just focus on that and get from one aid station to the next or one checkpoint to the next one, then you set yourself up for success at the end of the day. Mm. Well, that's really good advice. Um, I think what what is though very helpful of heart rate monitor is just to when there is a bit more controllable variables, like say for example, you know you're running on road, to just feel what the easy like when your heart rate is really low and in a in a zone which would be say an easy zone then just at that point be conscious of how your body feels and how that actually feels because i think i think one thing uh, again like you know i can only do a personal effect i'm not really <laughs> i'm not the coach here but uh you know um that i found was you tend to always always run a bit harder on an easy run if you don't have anything like anything more objective measuring it, you know, um, and I think that's really important to gauge what an easy effort feels like, um, and then confirm that to heart rate. And once you got those two right, and you can translate or transfer that to to trail running, I think you should be you should do quite well um, in terms of of managing that energy. Yeah. Um... So that is actually the only time I ever actually used heart rate um, for training because I also did go, obviously every runner delves down into that um, area. And uh, but the first thing I then did was, well, oh, I say I did, Nicolette actually did. She bought me a heart rate strap mm -hmm. because that's the thing. Like 
I'm a firm believer of no data is better than bad data because there's no point in looking at all your scores and all your numbers if the thing that's measuring everything that it's based on is not accurate. So unfortunately, wrist rate, heart rate, you know, heart, wrist heart rate reading monitors <laughs> is just not that accurate. Um, so get a proper chest strap, make sure it reads accurate, and then you go and train with it. And then exactly to lead on to what you said there, Peter, was like the runs I did with my heart rate strap was actually my only my intensity session, so my intervals, and then my recovery runs because I wanted to keep my recovery runs in a certain area. Um, and I wanted to make sure that my recovery runs are really easy and I am actually recovering because it's the old thing of we spend too much time in the middle and too little time easy and not enough time hard. So, you know, if you want to run a hard session a week, do it proper hard and then your recovery runs should be easy enough so that you are actually recovering because if we just spend time in the middle, we're not actually improving much, but we're also not actually recovering much. And that is sometimes where it can be very valuable to run with other people. And I don't want to make it sound like in a bad way, but like go run with someone that you know is slower than you. And you keep up a very conversational pace with them at all times. Because then you know, this is an easy run. It feels easy and I can talk freely, you know. So that's the first way I kind of like try to teach someone to run at a at their perceived effort is what what's your conversation like if you had to talk to someone or talk to yourself and I've talked to myself on plenty of runs um, there's nothing to be ashamed of <laughs> so it's like if you can maintain like an easy conversation then that is your easy run pace but if you can only get phrases or words out then you know you're going too hard um, even if that means you have to walk or just slow down significantly but the conversational kind of test is a very accurate one actually it sounds very simplistic but um, it's a good way to measure kind of like how hard is the effort you're actually you know exerting and uh, then it comes the same with the mountains for me it's like when I go out there then I know you know if there's a massive hill or climb or pass in the first section of the climb after the route I ask myself you know, this hill that I see in front of me, if this was at the end of the race, will I be able to run it? And if the answer is like, no, or I don't know, then well, I don't run it. I just hike it, you know, and you just keep that mentality. And if you are at the end and you have extra energy left, well, then go smash it. You know, you're probably going to overtake people then, but you just don't want to be forced to have to slow down significantly. You rather want to choose to slow down or speed up. And that's also where it comes to, you know, when you do look at the weather or the weather affects you in the high mountains, that's also where your expected pace comes down quite a lot. Because, you know, to say like that previous Grand Traverse camp that we were hosting, we had to take extra gear. So I decided I'm going to get out, buy myself a Nicolette, the Black Diamond Recon mitts. And I don't think anyone in South Africa actually uses mitts. But I just said, no, we're not going to the mountains again with weather like this and not have proper <laughs> protection for our hands because I'm just tired of losing feeling in my hands, in my fingers, you know, because now you can't do your laces, you can't do your zips. And to be honest, if we are, we are there in a guiding capacity, so we need to be able to look after other people, you know, we need to be able to get food out for them or get their gear out or just 
we can't afford to lose our feeling in our fingers basically so and yes these mitts weighed three times not that much but like probably about two and a half times what my um, gloves weigh and I had soft shell gloves but I know those gloves you know your fingers are separated you just if they get cold they don't get warm again where these mitts were just amazing you know we could put our hands in and they were heating up but basically what I'm getting to is you're adding more weight to your pack if the weather is worse and then your expected pace well adjust you know it is going to be slower because you're carrying more weight Um, so these are all the things we take into account when we do go out into the mountains and we say okay cool we plan a 30 kilometer route and we plan to do it in say 10 hours Okay, but it's going to snow. Okay, so either you need to say we expect to do it in 12 hours or we might need to cut the route down to 25 or 22 kilometers and then do it in 8 to 10 hours. So it's always managing that expectation and never never like having your ego kind of override your decision. It's kind of like dissolve your ego and make realistic decisions and have realistic expectations. Um, but look, I also think I'm going down a whole different rabbit hole here. And I think this would probably be a good time to switch over to you telling us about the shot in the dark competition, because otherwise I'll just carry on forever. So Gegrond last year, as I said in the intro, won the shot in the dark competition. Um, if you could quickly give us a, like a breakdown on, you know, what's the competition about, where did it start? Like, what are they actually doing in the competition? And what is your expectation? Yeah, Sorry, <laughs> what is your expectations <laughs> of the shot in the dark competition this year for Gegrond? Yeah, so um, it's a pity Freer couldn't join us today. He was uh, he was uh, he, he spearheaded the uh, shot in the dark for us last year. Um, so so yeah, we had a good result, and uh, we feel very lucky and privileged to have taken the title last year. So we are. There's an expectation placed on Gegrond. I don't think there was much of an expectation last year, but this year there'll definitely be expectation and, uh, you know, we are def- we will give it, you know, our all. Uh, we actually we actually have a new, a new employee on board as well who's going to be part of this whole initiative. And um, what initiative, this competition, so, uh, but... Yeah, we'll tell you more about that. Uh, we'll first <laughs> we'll first just <laughs> introduce everyone to her, um, and um, yeah, then we'll take it from there. But in any case, so what the Shotter Dark is all about? We had a chat about trail running and races, and I uh, had a bit of a talk about the Seven Sisters race and appeared at the uh, Platinum race last weekend. Um, so for roasters, is actually a competition as well. And that competition is called a shot in the dark. So a shot in the dark is basically a competition that was it's through the uh, it basically is sponsored by Genio. So Genio is the main sponsor for the shot in the dark, and it's hosted by the um, coffee magazine in South Africa. And basically, what this means is there's two rounds to this competition. The first is the um, it's called basically just the cupping so it's a challenge so there's two challenges challenge one is a cupping challenge they send you the green beans and you roast those beans to the best of your ability 
once you're happy, you basically send 500 grams of your best roasted coffee. You send back to the um, to the judges. These judges are, will then independently cut them, and they are like, yeah. So they'll independently cut them, and then they'll come to a decision who makes it through to the top ten. So if you if you've done a good job and your coffee is well received by the judges, then you would go to the second challenge. So the second challenge is again they will provide you with some green beans and you will roast those green beans to the best of your ability. Um, but in addition to that, you'll also be asked to do a blend. So they will send you a further two, two coffees. And then um, the two coffees that they send you, you'll again, you'll roast them. And then with the first coffee that you submitted, you will develop a blend using the three coffees then. And um, yeah, and then that will be used in an espresso. Uh, and basically that will be the determining factor if you win the shot in the dock or you don't. <laughs> so so that's uh, in uh, July they will announce the top 10 and then after that they'll uh, yeah then after that we'll we'll see when they announce the dates for the for the final um, present presenting the final I don't know <laughs> who's won the shot in the dark competition so that's in a nutshell what it's all about and uh, for this year Leonard who is our head roaster he'll be he'll be he's been tasked to drive this initiative and we'll all be supporting him and uh, yeah we look forward to see what the results are and we look forward to meeting everyone again and to cup some great coffees and just to enjoy and learn more about coffee because ultimately you know that that is a, a great learning experience for us and i'm sure for all the roasters who participate in this competition so yeah, yeah. That's, uh, wow that that's quite some that's quite something for Grunt that you guys managed to win that i mean as a relatively new and small coffee roasting company so yeah no wow that like super well done um I have a quick question with regards to how they, you said they give you a green bean. Do you have any information on that bean that they provide you? Because you were talking about the the species earlier. So do you know what the bean is or the origin or like, do you get any additional information or do you have to figure it out as you go? No, so they, so they will provide the, like we know it's a Tanzania, a Congoni bean, so it's a, in that area. Um, but and then they will provide what the processing method was and also the uh, uh, the very varietal of the the coffee. But other than that, you know, it's it's up to you to determine. Like you need to roast it and then you need to describe the flavors and all the rest of it. So um, okay, so, yeah, cool. So, so it's like you roaster. get a you get a few clues and then you just kind of go ahead with what you what you know yeah. and your ex your personal experience. Exactly. <laughs> so, and then, so it is quite interesting. Um, sorry, Peter, do they give you a limited amount of beans? Because obviously, you know, do they give you a kilogram or two kgs or an unlimited amount? Because the more you roast, obviously, the more you can perfect your roast that you give them back. Because I know you, send, you said that you send them 500 grams back. But how much do they send yeah. you? Because the more you can practice, well, the better you can kind of get at it. 
Yeah, so there's, there's, there's different tiers that you can you can enter. So the first tier is basically you have 10 ki kilograms, the second tier is 20 kilograms, and the third tier is 40 kilograms of coffee. Um, so we entered for the uh, second tier, so we get 20 kilograms of coffee. But on top of that, we've bought an additional two bags. The reason why we've done that is we would like to give our customers a taste of the coffee as well. We we expect it's going to be a really good coffee. Uh, so we just took a shot in the dark and ordered a few extra bags so that we would be able to put that on our website and that, you know, uh, once we get our coffee across, we can actually upload that to our website and then our customers can have a taste as well. So, um, you know, lessons learned from last year. <laughs> so... I you guess. can look out for that one. Yeah, that's really great. Um, so I should probably not ask more questions now because we should probably like round this up. But do they handicap you on, you know, so the people that enter the 10 kg, because in theory you have less attempts at creating your perfect roast versus someone that buys 40 kgs. Um, you know, do they handicap you appropriately? Look, I'll be honest, if, you need, if you're going to take 40 kgs, like there's not enough time for you to, you know, you, you can probably roast 40 kgs, but, you know, uh, but you'll have a range, like you should be have a fairly range with, say, you know, 5 or 10 k's in, and then it's only finessing that. So, you know, if you're going to order 40 kgs, yeah, I, th I wouldn't say, well, to answer your question, they don't handicap you. <laughs> we'll keep it simple. No, they okay. don't handicap you. <laughs> okay, great. And um, this does, uh, yeah. this does like uh, time it into a, you know, now we need the mountain ground uh, blend to come through. Um, but we'll touch on that on yeah. another on another episode, eh? Um, so we can, so Mountain Abandoned yeah. can also have a coffee blend because, uh, you know, coffee is deep in our blood. Anyway. I do think we have run out of time. We'll, we'll we'll put Mountain Abandoned to the test. We'll we'll get you to help us with the blend, <laughs> with the blend for shot in the dark, and then we'll let the independent judge give us some feedback. <laughs> okay, can we get a hundred kilograms, please? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Anyway, ach, Peter, as always, it's been ach, it's just been a pleasure catching up with you, and like I've been wanting to get more insight into your seven sisters race, so. Uh, thanks for your time um, and to everyone's listening thanks for your time and um, yeah do subscribe to the podcast to just catch all the rest of the um, episodes that's coming and also please give us feedback on how we can improve the podcast we do receive nice whatsapps from people saying you know we like this we didn't like that that much and all that kind of stuff so yeah please give feedback and you know Peter thanks for chatting to us tonight again no, thank you guys as well and have a great week.